Doctor Who, Vengeance of the Stones, performed by Richard Franklin with Trevor Littledale as Garland. Northeast Scotland, two Hawker Hunter GA-11 fighter jets on a training flight out of RAF Lossiemouth were cutting through the air at 400 knots, heading east along the Moray Firth. They maintained low altitude a mile out from the shore. Instructor Flight Lieutenant John Morton held the rear position in the second aircraft, close behind his trainee, Flying Officer Frank Parry. Morton knew all the villages they passed along the coastline. Bucky, Fockerbus, Cullen. And now they were coming up to Port Soy, where they would turn. Blue 2 to Blue 1. Turning right, 80 degrees in 10. Morton acknowledged. Very good, Blue 2. 80 degrees right in 10. Just past the village, both planes tipped their wings, turned and headed inland. Morton could make no sense of what happened next. There was a sudden flare of green light. It seemed to Morton that it came from below and hit the underside of Frank Parry's aircraft, which was thrown backwards in the sky, narrowly missing his own plane. A split instant later, his cockpit filled with the same green flare of light, and he felt a force like a punch in his chest as his aircraft decelerated violently. Instinctively, Morton increased thrust looking to outrun whatever this threat was. But the engine strained. A vibration shook his bones, and he felt that his aircraft was hanging motionless in the air. He struggled to subdue his fear. And it stopped. The green light disappeared, and his aircraft shot forward as though released from a catapult. A trained professional, he regained his composure quickly and brought his plane back under full control. He banked, and turned to head back to where the incident had happened. As he did so, he keyed his headset radio and called. Blue 1 to Blue 2. Report position and status over. No reply. He looked all about for signs of wreckage on the ground, as he again called. Blue 2, Blue 2. Come in, Blue 2. Nothing. Frank. Come in, Frank, blast you. Morton turned his aircraft and swept back along his flight path, repeating the calls to his flying partner. After the fifth sweep, with no sign of the second hunter in the sky or on the ground, he set course back to Lossiemouth and radioed in that one of their aircraft was missing. Days later, a young army lieutenant found himself at RAF Lossiemouth watching as an aircraft, a bulky, powerful Lockheed Hercules cargo transporter, dropped out of the clouds and landed on the main runway. As it taxied to its parking spot, he made out the decals on the side of the Hercules. UNIT, unit. Some troubleshooting squad with a remit to respond to unusual incidents, he'd been told. Canteen rumour was that they hunted little green men. The lieutenant smiled at the idea. He was surprised when the loading ramp was lowered and instead of a military vehicle or staff car, a quaint, bright yellow roadster emerged and drove towards him. It was of an old design but seemed nippy enough. The passenger looked like a senior officer. The driver, however, was definitely not a military figure. He was an older man with an overfull head of grey-white hair, dressed garishly in a caped overcoat over a velvet jacket and frilly shirt. The yellow car drew to a halt. The driver, flashing a smile, 
and making playful use of a rubber air horn fitted on the side of the windscreen. The passenger, uh, confirmed at close quarters as a brigadier, stepped out of the car and straightened his tunic before striding forward. The lieutenant's hand shot up in an efficient salute, which the brigadier answered with his own. Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart, the senior officer introduced himself. Lieutenant uh, Yates, is it? Mike Yates, yes sir. Welcome to Lossiemouth. He looked hesitantly at the brigadier's driver, unsure whether to maintain his salute. The driver saw his discomfort and smiled disarmingly. He offered a hand. No need for salutes for me, Mike. Uh, may I call you Mike? Nice to meet you. Mike smiled broadly as he shook hands with this stranger. He liked him immediately. The brigadier completed the introductions. This is the doctor, unit scientific advisor. Doctor... The doctor widened his grin. Oh, just the doctor. The brigadier took charge of the conversation. Lieutenant Yates, I'm led to believe you know this part of the country well. I've been posted to Fort George at Inverness for the last two years, sir. Also, I spent much of my childhood in this part of Scotland. I have family links to Aberdeen on my mother's side. Just what we need, said the brigadier. I've already spoken with your commanding officer. As of one hour ago, you are seconded to unit on a temporary basis. Seconded? The brigadier smiled reassuringly. Only for as long as it takes us to work out what happened to this aircraft. The doctor now interceded. What can you tell us about that, Mike? We've conducted extensive land and sea searches, and there's no trace of the aircraft or its pilot. Grampian Police Special Branch have made discreet inquiries on the ground, and no one has reported seeing or hearing anything unusual. The brigadier said, Quite the mystery. He was looking over the lieutenant's shoulder to the Hercules. Mike turned and saw that a squad of about 60 unit troops had disembarked and were now assembled in four lines next to it. A burly sergeant was inspecting them. The brigadier said, That's Sergeant Benton. Excellent chap. Very reliable. Good to know, sir. Shall I speak to him about arranging facilities for you? The brigadier shook his head. You will find we're self-contained, Lieutenant. That Hercules is our mobile command and control centre. But uh, did you receive my logistics request? Yes, sir. Three Sea King helicopters, ready to scramble at ten minutes' notice. Uh, that's them, over there. Sir! Mr Yates, sir! All three turned to see a young RAF corporal running towards them, a piece of paper in his hand. Mike gestured to him to slow down. Steady on, McRae! The corporal regained his composure with an effort. The doctor smiled at him. What's your news, young man? McRae answered. There's been a sighting of the pilot. The doctor took the piece of paper out of the young man's hand and studied it. Uh, this is a police report. Five minutes ago, man in a flying suit spotted in fields near Inveruri, apparently in a distressed state. Inveruri... That's about 50 miles from here. The doctor climbed into his car. I'll drive, Mike. You navigate. In this? The doctor answered. This is Bessie, and she'll surprise you. doctor wasn't wrong. The little yellow car that he called Bessie was remarkably fast. The 50-mile journey to the outskirts of Inveruri took less than an incredible 10 minutes. Mike studied the location details in the police message, and when they approached a roundabout on the outskirts of the town, he directed the doctor right onto a road that led west into countryside. After half a mile, they saw a police panda car parked at the side of the road. Two uniformed officers were standing next to it talking to a middle-aged man in blue overalls. This was the original witness, who described a man that fitted Frank Parry's description. Last seen staggering along the top of the field on their left, heading west. The doctor said, We'll take it from here, officers. 
And with that, he gunned the engine and drove off down the road. The doctor said, he could have covered some distance by now, but we'll follow the line of direction he was taking. Keep your eyes open, Mike. They continued straight for over a mile. Briefly, the open fields on their left turned to forest, then to fields again. They were driving alongside a field, along the top of which, on the skyline about 500 yards away, ran a line of trees. And with the sun behind the trees, they appeared to Mike as silhouettes. And there, moving between them, was the outline of a man, staggering along, purposeful. There he is. The doctor saw him too. He looks exhausted, he said. The doctor climbed out of the car and ran towards a narrow gate on their left, which opened onto a dirt trail that led up the hill. Mike followed. They reached the tree line in a few minutes and paused. The woodland was apparently empty. Then they saw him, to their right, scrambling up a shallow grass slope. His flying suit was muddy and torn, and it seemed to Mike that he barely had the energy to stand. They climbed into the field and went after him. Flying Officer Parry! Parry twisted his head towards them, his eyes wide and scared. He stopped for a moment, then he continued on, running wildly now, his arms flailing. The doctor narrowed his eyes as he looked ahead. What's that up there? Mike followed the doctor's gaze. Just visible over the crest of the hill, he could make out the tops of a number of upright stones. And with a rush of memory, he recognised them. It's the Easter Aquarthys. The what? asked the doctor. The Easter Aquarthys. It's an ancient stone circle. I've been here. I was young, uh, but I've been here. The doctor considered this. I wonder if this is where he's been heading all along. He increased his speed and urgency. Come on. The doctor's long strides meant he reached the top of the hill not far behind the flying officer, who was climbing over a low wire fence. The doctor leaped over the fence and blocked his path. Mike caught them up as the doctor was saying, It's all right, old chap. We're here to help. Mike looked beyond the two men to the impressive sight that occupied the top of the hill. It was, as he remembered it, a remarkably well-preserved ring of stones, positioned on a raised circle of grass about 60 feet across. There were nine freestanding stones, short and broad, and on the far side, a large rectangle of stone lying on its side. This, Mike knew, was called the recumbent stone. It was closely flanked by two further uprights. The raised ground on which the circle stood was in fact a shallow bowl, contained within the wire fence, and its position offered a view for miles around. Ah! Frank Parry pushed the doctor aside and charged towards the recumbent stone. As he sank to his knees, looking longingly at the stone, he reached out his hands and pressed his palms hard against the grey slab. A weak smile appeared on his face. A smile that turned to a look of terror. <laughs> there was a flash of light, like an electrical discharge, and Parry was thrown back violently. He landed some ten feet from the stone, twisting and turning on the ground. The doctor dropped to the pilot's side, checking for a pulse. He looked up at Mike and shook his head. Poor fellow. Mike looked at the stone. He couldn't believe what he had just seen. Hesitantly, curious, he approached the recumbent. He had climbed on this stone as a child. He had touched it. He was tempted to reach out, just to check. Then the doctor stretched his hand past him and pressed it flat against the surface of the stone. There was no reaction. The doctor smiled and said, Harmless now, Mike. It would seem. Mike hesitated. Do you come across this sort of thing often, working for unit? The doctor replied, more often than you'd think. Two hours later, the doctor, Mike and the brigadier were back at Lossiemouth and assembled in the unit operations room within the Hercules transporter. In front of them, 
was a large wall map of Moray in Aberdeenshire. A red pin stuck to the map showed where the hunter had disappeared near the north coast. Another showed the location of the Easter Aquarthys circle far to the south of it. The doctor rubbed at his neck in thought. That stone circle is 4,000 years old. He didn't qualify the remark, but left it hanging there as a statement of fact. The brigadier turned to his newest recruit. Yates, you said this is a recumbent stone circle? Uh, there are a lot of them across this part of Scotland. A hundred or so. A hundred? asked the brigadier. Yes, uh, they're almost unique to this area, although not many are as well preserved as the Easter of is. The signature detail is the recumbent stone, a large slab placed on its side in the southwest corner of the circle. For what purpose? asked the brigadier. The doctor picked up the subject. There's a theory that they were used to predict the cycles of the moon, but no one knows for sure. There could well have been another purpose. The brigadier gestured to the map. Speaking of mysteries, how do we explain that airman turning up almost 40 miles from where he disappeared? The doctor replied. Well, he walked, brigadier. He walked a long way, using up almost all of his energy to do so. The brigadier's brow furrowed. But why? The doctor said. The answer to that is in whatever caused him to disappear in the first place. Brigadier gave an exasperated sigh. That is our objective, Doctor, and what all the military resources in this area have been trying to find out for almost two days, without success. The Doctor beamed. I shall need only one military resource for what I have in mind, which is, tonight I'll fly one of those fighter planes myself at the same time and on the same flight path as the unfortunate flying officer Parry. Doctor, you can't be. The doctor was already heading for the way out. I'll need a flying suit as well. Mike was appalled at the doctor's plan, but the brigadier had a wry look. There's no point in arguing with him, he said. Right, Yates. Got a job for you. Sir? I want a security cordon around that stone circle. No one gets near it until we know what we're facing here. Mike saluted. Yes, sir. Three hours later, the doctor taxied his Hawker Hunter jet onto the main runway at Lossimar. It was dark now, and a waning quarter moon hung in the sky. A familiar voice came over the radio. You're cleared for takeoff, Doctor. Good luck. The doctor turned his head towards the control tower where he saw the brigadier was looking down at him through the glass, radio mic in hand. He replied, Luck will have nothing to do with it. He released the brakes. The fighter raced off down the runway, then lifted up into the night sky. The brigadier stood in contemplative silence, watching the doctor's aircraft disappear into the night. Then he turned sharply and addressed the controller. I need a pilot. At the same time, Mike Yates was at the Easter Aquarthys, giving two unit privates their orders. Uh, you maintain guard here. Anyone approaching the stones is to be told there's an army exercise underway and the area is out of bounds. If they ask questions... What's that? Mike and the two men were standing next to the stones within the wire fence boundary. The waning moonlight had been the only illumination and the stones had been visible as little more than patches of grey in the darkness. But now the recumbent stone was glowing. A blue-white light was spreading across the stone and illuminating the entire circle. Stay there. Mike stepped away from the two soldiers. He entered the circle and walked up to the recumbent stone, which was now enveloped in light. Mike fell to his knees. He felt as if his brain was boiling inside his skull. The sound was more than a sound, it was a force that cut through him. Then, suddenly, 
there was a burst of light that he could make out even though his eyes were tight shut in pain. He forced himself to look and saw twisting fingers of energy spreading out from the recumbent to all the other stones in the circle. Then those stones too began to glow. Mike wanted to get up and run, but he couldn't. He was completely debilitated by the pain in his head. Lieutenant! Lieutenant Yates, sir! The two soldiers ran forward, rifles in the ready position. He waved at them to stay back, but too late. As they entered the circle, they were hit by a huge release of energy from the stones nearest them and thrown back in the air. They landed unconscious, unmoving heaps on the ground. Mike felt himself about to pass out, unable to endure the pain in his head much longer. Then, to his giddy amazement, amidst the turmoil, another stone appeared, a large boulder of blue rock, suffused with a blue, orange and red flickering light. It materialized in the very center of the circle, and a figure, an indistinct silhouette backlit by the glow from the circle, tall and thin, appeared from behind the stone and came towards Mike, moving with urgency. Come with me. Quickly. Mike had neither the strength nor the will to resist, as the figure lifted him and half carried, half dragged him to the blue stone. His hands were pressed against it. Then he felt as if he were falling from a great height. Mike could endure no more. Blackness enveloped him, and he lapsed into unconsciousness. A short time earlier, the doctor, following the same flight path as Morton and Parry, had turned his hawker hunter inland by Port Soy. He was alert, knowing this was near the point where Parry's aircraft had vanished. Then he saw something very strange. Looking ahead, he could see the ground become dappled with points of light. There were at least 50 of them, spread out over many miles. Then from each of these points of light, a tendril of energy shot up from the ground and met at a single point in the sky. The doctor watched, transfixed, as the tendrils of energy coalesced, building to a great orb of power. And then, the orb shot away into space at tremendous speed. In an instant, it was a distant spot. And then it was gone. Tendrils of energy faded away, as did the glowing points of light on the ground. An idea occurred to the doctor. Mike had mentioned that this area of Scotland was plentiful in recumbent stone circles. Suddenly, a ball of energy shot up from below and struck the rear of the doctor's plane. The aircraft went erratically out of control. The doctor struggled with the controls, his priorities being to gain altitude and head back towards the sea. He kept the nose up and managed a sluggish turn. He could see the coast ahead, but he was losing height rapidly. He saw the ground coming up towards him. Then, to his relief, it was replaced by ocean. Breaking waves rushed past underneath him. Too late to eject, the doctor braced himself. The plane entered the water nose first. The impact knocked the breath out of the doctor and shattered the cockpit. As water flooded in around him, he took a deep breath and released his harness. He swam from the cockpit and kicked towards the surface as the hunter dropped away beneath him. The doctor broke the surface to find tall waves all around him. He started treading water but the waves kept crashing over him and pushing him under the surface. <coughs> he wondered how long he could last like this. The sound of the approaching Sea King was one of the sweetest noises the doctor had ever heard. Soon he was on a winch being lifted from the water. 
As he was hauled into the helicopter, he was surprised to find the brigadier looking down at him. He said, Thought I'd better follow along behind, Doctor. You do have a habit of getting yourself into the most awful trouble. Then his smile dropped, and he told the doctor that Mike Yates was missing. Mike regained consciousness slowly. His head felt numb, and there was a dull pain behind his eyes. He lifted his head, and the first thing he saw was the large blue stone that had appeared in the circle, now no longer suffused with energy, but sitting a few feet from him, inert, but still very blue. He next realized he was incongruously sitting in an upholstered chair in the front room of a large house. The chair and the room had both seen better days. The house was clearly derelict. The windows were boarded up, but enough light seeped through for him to see that it was daylight. He had been unconscious for hours. Then he saw who was in the room with him, and he caught his breath. There were four of them, and the first thing he realized about them was that they weren't human. They had human-like features, but the proportions were wrong. They were tall, each of them more than seven feet in height and thin. They had extended faces, and there was a translucent quality to their skin that was clearly unearthly. It seemed to Mike that two were male and two were female. They each wore the same style of clothing, severe grey jackets and trousers, and each of them had a glove, like a gauntlet, made of a stiff grey material on their right hand. The taller of the two males approached him. Don't be afraid. Are you aliens? We are a million. Aliens, yes. Am I your prisoner? Be thankful you're alive. If I hadn't rescued you from the stones, you would have been atomized when the energy packet was launched. You appeared from thin air. I have questions for you. I would be most grateful for your engagement with the process. My colleagues... Oh, let me introduce them. That is Mayara, my mate. That is Flairin, and the sullen-faced young man next to her is Altus. I am Garlin. Garlin Mun. And you are? Yates. Mike Yates. Well, Yates. My colleagues and I are reluctant to compel you to answer. We have already tried that on one of your species, and the results were unfortunate. Frank Perry? The human from the flying machine. He was an angry man. We had to apply a measure of force. Sadly, his brain wasn't quite up to it. But you're not an angry man, are you, Yates? You'll cooperate, won't you? What do you want? This is a violent world. We must know what your offensive capability is and how advanced your weapons are. Why are you here? You seem to be asking the questions again. But all right, this one. We are scientists, Yates, from a planet called Tharus. We came to this world as an exploratory research group to find out all we could about its inhabitants, its minerals, its wildlife, everything. It's what we do. We look for planets similar to our own. You'd colonize the Earth? Oh, please. We look for resources, minerals mainly, and this world did look promising. So we came and we set up a network of data collection reservoirs. They are large, but aesthetically consistent with local features to blend in. The stone circles. Well done, yes. We have a particular science. You see this? The Tharan stone. That blue rock? It is pure Tharasite, extracted from the mantle of our home planet. We have a telepathic affinity with Tharasite and with the Tharan stone. We can manipulate the forces within all igneous rocks. Most races have no idea of the energies that lie dormant in the stones that originate from their world's core. We can tap them and control them. So yes, we established several of these stone circles. 
The local inhabitants already used circles as centers for ritual. We gave them a few more, each one including a data collector stone, a large slab. The recumbent stone. Recumbent? Yes, that would describe them. The recumbent stones are data collectors. They passively absorb and store data over many years. You introduced the recumbent stones. The local people even started to imitate them. But if you introduce the recumbent stone circles, that means you've been here for at least 4,000 years. How is that possible? Enough of your questions. Do you know what this is? It's a stone. There are certain rock types with which our science works particularly well. Granite is one. Serpentine, like this, is another. Both are abundant in this region. It's why we landed here. This is clever, Yates. I insert the serpentine into this retainer in the palm of my glove, and I can now control it with the power of my mind. Garlin, don't do this. We must know what threat your species pose to us with their technology. Garlin, no. This will hurt. I apologize. No! Restrain him! No! The doctor stood at the new harbour in Port Soy, looking back towards the fishing village, its houses clustered on slopes that rose away from the area of the village's two harbours. It looked such a serene place. An army land rover, driven by the brigadier, came out of one of the side streets and pulled up next to him. The doctor asked, Any update on Mike Yates? The brigadier shook his head. Nothing. Two soldiers from the eastern Aquarthys are still unconscious. We've no idea what happened to them, or to him. The doctor shook his head. It's those stones again. The brigadier commented, And you think what you saw last night was connected to the other stone circles? The doctor said, I've checked with your map people. Those lights I saw correspond to the stone circle sites. But you said you saw at least 30 or 40 of them light up. I did, didn't I? The doctor rubbed his neck in that thoughtful way and said, Then there's this village. You're sure whatever attacked you was fired from here? Not sure, no, said the doctor. But it was here or very nearby. The brigadier said, My men have been through every street. There's nothing out of the ordinary that could be found, the doctor said. It wouldn't be obvious. A young boy, blonde-haired and about eight years old, in a T-shirt and shorts, came running past on the road heading for the shore. The doctor gave him a casual glance and noticed the lad was carrying something in his hand. He became suddenly alert. Brigadier, that young fellow's carrying a flying helmet. As the boy ran round the bend in the road, the brigadier could make out the flying helmet held in his right hand. Good Lord, he said. The doctor jumped into the Land Rover and said, We need to speak to him. The boy ran towards a grassy area by the seafront, where large fishing nets were strung out across several upright poles next to a cluster of large green fishing sheds. The boy approached one of the sheds. The unit Land Rover pulled over and the doctor called, Hello! The boy stopped. When he saw the brigadier's army uniform, he looked worried. Aye? he asked. The doctor approached him with his broadest, friendliest smile. What's your name? The boy said, Davy. Davy Ross. Well, Davy, the doctor pointed to the flying helmet in his hand, can you tell me, where did you get that? I found it, said Davy. You found it? Where? Davy nodded his head towards the green shed. The doctor looked at it, and as he did, he felt the strangest sensation, as if he should walk away. The brigadier came to his side and said, there can't be anything for us here, Doctor. We should leave. The Doctor frowned. He felt conflicted. Then he said, Yes, Brigadier, 
quite right, wasting our time. And he even took two steps towards the Land Rover before he looked back over his shoulder at the building and thought hard about what he was doing. Then he turned back to the green shed, strode forward purposefully, grabbed a handle on the sliding door of the building and pulled it open. And there, almost filling the interior, was the missing Hawker Hunter aircraft. It had been taken apart. The frame and landing gear were intact, but almost every body part and panel had been removed and littered the floor. The doctor said, They've made a very detailed inspection, whoever they are. The brigadier wanted to know, Doctor, what just happened? We were going to walk away. The doctor explained, Someone very clever has put up a perception barrier around this building. A perception barrier? asked the brigadier. A field that affects the perception centres of the brain, brigadier. Basically, it tells you, Nothing to see here, move along. Although it's not entirely effective against determined interest, it also doesn't affect the immature minds of the young, like our friend Davy here. Am I in trouble, mister? Davy wanted to know. The doctor said, Not at all, and you can keep the helmet. The brigadier added, But all other military property in this shed remains where it is. Understood? Oh, aye, said Davy. And with that he popped the flying helmet on his head and smiled. Does this mean we have to stay away for the hoose as well? The brigadier frowned. What house? Davy pointed. They followed his gesture towards the cliffs west of the village, just beyond the harbours. I don't see a... The brigadier began. But then it seemed a house appeared. There it was, standing alone on a clifftop promontory, a derelict-looking two-storey granite building, its roof collapsed in places with boarded windows. Another perception barrier, the doctor explained. Davy said... People act funny when they go near it. Like it's not there. Oh, yes, said the doctor. Do you play there? No, said Davy, his face serious now. The scary people in there. Scary like beasties. The doctor said, Davy, this is important. Tell us everything you know about that house and these beasties. You are being disappointingly unresponsive, Mike Yates. I could feel you putting images in my head of death. Violent death. I was channeling the memory of our loss, making you suffer as we suffered at your hands. What do you mean? We came here, as you say, more than 4,000 years ago. We were a party of ten. Scientists, as I told you, not soldiers, not aggressors. We had some limited contact with the indigenous people, tribal warrior types. They set upon us in an ambush. We were unprepared, unarmed. They killed six of our number, brutally. You escaped? We were left for dead. Mayara saved us. She was the least badly wounded. She got us into healing capsules that suspended our life signs and interred themselves deep in the ground, along with the Tharon Stone. So why are you awake 4,000 years later? There were ground tremors caused by human machinery, manufacturing a passageway for your vehicles. Roadworks? They disturbed the ground we were buried in. This reactivated the capsules. We came to the surface at night and regrouped. We recovered the Tharan stone. We used stealth and caution until we were ready to use the stone circles. You stole the fighter plane. Why? To examine it. To know its capability. To know our enemy. Garlin, we don't need to be enemies. We are enemies! Your kind slaughtered my kind! Your people will be judged after we return to Tharus. Return? We have sent a distress message to Tharus. That was the process you stumbled upon last night. 
We combined the power of all our stone circles to form a data packet. It was fired into space. It will reach Tharus soon. A sad voice came from the other side of the room. No, it won't. The doctor was standing in the doorway. What? Who on Tharus are you? I'm the doctor, and I'm sorry to tell you that Tharus no longer exists. All four of the Armidians reacted to this, looking at each other nervously. You're lying. You're human. You can't... I'm no more a native of this planet than you are. And I know that Tharus and its entire system were destroyed in an interplanetary conflict more than three millennia ago. A fiction. The doctor said, I knew Tharus. Fourth planet of the Valerian system. Three moons, the largest of which was Krater. True then. Tharus is gone? The doctor nodded. I'm afraid so. He stepped into the room. Let me help you. Release Mike. This hasn't gone too far. We can find a way for you to live here peacefully. I'm reluctant to trust these humans after what they did to us. These humans have done nothing to deserve your enmity. Those who attacked you have been dead for 4,000 years. So, what do you say? The Doctor and Mike waited anxiously as Garland considered the offer. Unit soldiers came charging in from the hallway, guns raised, shouting at the Armidians to raise their hands, Sergeant Benton at their head. The doctor stood in their way, arms raised, a shield between Unit and the Armidians. He shouted, No! Benton, I told the Brigadier to wait! Mike cried out, Doctor! The doctor turned to see Mike on his feet, being held between two of the Armidians as Garlin, behind, held a gauntlet with a stone close to his temple. I can kill him very easily, and I will, unless you put down your weapons. The doctor said, Benton, lower your weapons. The sergeant reluctantly put down his rifle, and the rest of his squad did the same. We will leave. You will stay very still. The Armidians gathered round the Tharan stone. As Garlin kept hold of Mike, his three companions placed their gloved hands on the surface of the rock glowed with a light that began in its core and radiated out red and blue and orange flecks in a pool of white. No! Mike suddenly lashed out, placing one foot on the stone and pushing himself away. He came free of Garland's grip and fell to the floor. The unit soldiers snatched up their rifles, even as the Armidians and the stone started to fade in front of their eyes. Garland brought up his gloved hand. The stone in his palm glowed fiercely. Benton ordered, Fire! The doctor cried, No! Don't shoot! But to no effect. North of the village of Daviot was another stone circle called Lone Head of Daviot. It was situated in a remote forest clearing. Ten tall upright stones, including two flankers, formed the circle together with a recumbent stone. The centre of the circle was distinguished by a thick carpet of smaller stones dappled white with age. The Tharan stone materialised in the centre of the circle, crushing the smaller rocks underneath it. As the stone and the Armidians holding onto it became solid, Flerin, the younger of the two females, collapsed to the ground, clutching at a gunshot wound in her side. Garlin cradled her in his arms. Flarin, speak to me. It was already too late. Flarin's head rolled to one side. She was dead. Oh, Flarin, no. No! Ayara said angrily, The humans haven't changed. They would kill us all. Garlin placed Flarin gently down on the ground. We are the last of our kind. We must protect our bloodline. Altos asked. How? We kill every human being on this planet. Mike Yates walked into the unit operations center in the Hercules transporter at Lossiemouth to find the doctor and brigadier arguing. The doctor said, 
You were meant to hold your men back, the brigadier said. You suggested that, Doctor, but I agreed to no such thing. In any case, it's done now. He noticed the new arrival. Ah, Yates, how are you feeling? I'm good, sir, quite recovered. Still trying to take in, well, everything. The doctor asked, are you sure you're all right, Mike? That was quite an ordeal you went through. Positive. I wouldn't miss this for the world. Doctor, can I ask you something? Certainly you can. Was it true what you said to the Armidians? You're an alien. The doctor flashed a reassuring smile. I am, yes. Is that all right? Mike hesitated. As I said, it's a lot to take in. They were joined by Benton. The brigadier asked, how is Private Thompson? Benton replied, he'll be okay, sir. He'll sit in the arm. He's responding to treatment. The brigadier said, good show. Well, doctor, turning to the matter in hand, you think these Armidians are still in this area? The doctor answered, their technology is dependent on the power the Tharon stone draws from the igneous rocks in this region, and particularly those recumbent stone circles they set up. I believe they've transported themselves to one of those circles. The brigadier said, Of which there are about a hundred, I believe you said, Yates. I'm afraid so, sir. Although some of them hardly qualify as circles, with just a few stones remaining. The doctor said, They'd want a complete circle, more reliable for channeling their technology. I can help with mapping the best preserved circles. The brigadier nodded. Do that. Then we'll deploy by helicopter in three sections and work our way through them. I'll take one section. Yates, you'll take another. And Benton, you'll have the third. Doctor, you say they draw their power through this Tharon stone. The doctor said, it's essential to them. Brigadier said, Then your orders, Yates, Benton, are, at all costs, destroy the Tharon stone. The brigadier led them to a map on the wall. Now, Yates, point out on this map here. Where are the circles we need to look at? A clerk approached and said, a Doctor, a call for you. The doctor was puzzled. For me? Who is it? Uh, they wouldn't say, sir. They sounded very insistent. <laughs> Wouldn't let me get a word in. The doctor looked annoyed. Oh, very well. He walked across to the desk where the telephone handset was waiting for him. Hello. He heard the voice of an excitable young man saying, How long? Is this long enough? Uh, this should be long enough. Hello, doctor. Is the doctor here? The doctor wasn't amused. He said, is this some sort of joke? I haven't got the time to... The younger-sounding version of himself interrupted. Have I got the right one, by the way? White hair, abundance of nose, dressed like Oscar Wilde on a bad day? The doctor gave the telephone receiver an affronted look. What? The voice continued. Oh, sorry, sorry, I should have said. This is a recording. Pity we can't chat, but needs must bit of an emergency at this end, and, as I am very well aware, bit of an emergency at your end, too. Stone circles, Armidians, Scottish diet. Ha! You're annoyed now, but this is the serious bit. Listen, I haven't got long, and I have to choose my words carefully. If I've calculated the timing correctly, the Brigadier, lovely man, has just worked out that the only way to defeat the Armidians is to destroy the Tharon Stone. A clever old Brigadier trouble is, I, and that is you, have to find another way. It's vital that the Tharon Stone is preserved and sent to Professor Reynard of the Royal Society, the Earth Sciences chap. I know you think he's another nitwit, but trust me on this. Oh, and one more thing. The Brigadier won't be persuaded to preserve the stone, not now, and you can't mention this conversation. You have to take matters into your own hands. So, a word to the wise, make your way to the East Ocorthis Circle. Get there as quickly as you can and tell no one. Good luck, me! The doctor stared at the handset for some time, deep in thought. 
he had no doubt he had just heard from one of his future selves. A future self who, however garrulous, was in a situation so critical he had done something as reckless as to send a message back into his own time stream. The doctor looked towards the brigadier, Mike and Benton. All three remained focused on pinpointing the stone circles on the map. He took Bessie's keys from his pocket and walked out. At the lone head of Daviot Circle, with night falling, the Armidians were gathered by the Tharan stone. We are agreed. Myara and Altus nodded. Myara, you remain here. Altus, I'll take you to Circle Ultima. Then I'll take the Tharan stone to Circle Prime. From there, I can control the sequence, but I'll need you both to set up your circles as relay points. Harness the power of all the recumbents, Use them to absorb the power of the planet's mantle and send it through the stones to me. Then I'll use the Saren Stone to expel that power across the entire surface of this planet and kill every human in its path. We will be safe within the stones. Ayara said, they bring it on themselves. Well said. Remember that. We came here in peace. They are the aggressors. We have no home world, but we will make this our home world. Altus said, let's begin. They embraced. Then Garlin and Altus placed their gloved hands on the Tharan stone. Alone now, Mayara looked around at the circle of stones. Then she headed for the recumbent. She placed her gloved palm against the stone. Twenty minutes later, the peace of the Easter Aquarius was broken when the Tharin stone materialized. Garlin stood alone alongside it, having delivered Altus to his location. Garlin hurried towards the recumbent, but he came to a halt when the doctor stepped out from behind the great slab. Misplaced your friend? The Time Lord inquired. Doctor? Ha! Huh. You are also alone, I see. I've come to repeat my offer. I can negotiate between you and the humans. Clear up any misunderstanding. There is no misunderstanding. They are savages. They're really not. They killed Flarin, the soldiers at the house, the doctor said. I'm very sorry, but that was an incident in the heat of the moment. They will all die for it. You should leave this world while you can. Even if I could. Right now, I wouldn't. Very well. Garlin raised his glove towards the doctor. <laughs> the doctor was hit in the chest and thrown back. He lay still on the grass. Garlin stepped up to the recumbent and slammed his palm against it. The recumbent glowed with the same blue-white light that Mike had witnessed the night before. As the stone filled with energy, Garlin returned to the Tharan stone and repeated the gesture, pressing his hand against the blue stone. The Tharan stone pulsed and vibrated under Garlin's palm as it followed his telepathic instruction. And using the Tharan stone, in his mind's eye, Garlin could clearly see Mayara and Altus in their locations. They were moving among their stones, energizing the recumbents, and then the uprights. Their circles became beacons of energy. Now the uprights of the Easter Aquarius glowed. Mayara and Altus had linked all the Armidian recumbents, directing their power to the Easter Aquarius and the Tharan Stone. The power that made planets. The power of the stones. At Lossiemouth, three squads of unit troops were scrambling aboard their helicopters. Mike Yates counted his 20 men on board and was the last to climb into the cabin. As he did, the brigadier ran up to him, calling, Yates, we've got them. Where, sir? The brigadier said, Looks as if they've split up. There are reports of three circles glowing like Roman candles. Our job just became three times harder. 
and three times as dangerous. What are my orders, sir? The brigadier answered. You'll take Bravo's section to the Easter Quarthies. Benton and I will be going to circles at Daviot and at Midmar. First section to find that blue stone destroys it. Take the Armidians prisoner if you can. Sir, the brigadier asked. And Yates, have you seen the doctor? Not since we were in the Hercules, brigadier said. Blast. Ah well, whatever he is, looks as if he's going to miss the action this time. Good luck, Yates. Sir. All right, Bravo section. We're off. The doctor opened his eyes, unsure how long he'd been unconscious, to find Garlin standing at the Theron stone. It was now a radiant, pulsing mass. The stones of the circle were glowing bright white. The doctor rose unsteadily to his feet and said, Garlin, stop this madness. Welcome back, Doctor. Stay where you are. If I strike you again, you will die. The doctor walked towards him. I said stay where you are! The doctor said, I won't stand by and watch while you murder an entire race. Garlin lifted his glove, palm towards the doctor. Very well. I did warn you. Goodbye, Doctor. The helicopter carrying Mike Yates and his unit team came in low and fast, appearing suddenly from over the treetops. Several ropes were dropped, and in moments, Mike and his section had abseiled at speed down into the circle. Out of the way, Doctor! Grenades! The Doctor shouted. Mike, you mustn't! But the unit men had already pulled the pins from their grenades, which they threw towards the Theron stone. Garlin manipulated the Theron stone, and a dome of rippling energy appeared in an instant around him and the stone as well. The grenades bounced off the force barrier and hit the ground. The Doctor cried out, Down, everyone! The Doctor, Mike and the other unit troops had thrown themselves out of the circle and into cover just in time. Now Mike moved forward, dropped to one knee and brought his revolver up to the aim. You can't harm me in here. All you can do is watch and die. No! Wait! What is this? Altus! The power of the Theron stone and the stones of the circle fluctuated wildly. Garlin applied both hands to the Theron stone and concentrated. Altus was ten miles away at a recumbent circle, set in a clearing next to a church and graveyard near the village of Midmar. Garlin saw him clearly. The recumbent and its seven uprights were glowing fiercely around him. He also saw the human soldiers drop from their primitive aircraft and charge forward. One, obviously the leader, with badges of rank on his shoulder, led the attack with a handgun drawn. Altus defended bravely, using the glove to dispatch some of their number, but he had no Theron stone to save him. No! At the doctor's side, Doctor, what's happening? The doctor said, I think the battle to save humanity has started, Mike. He ushered Mike closer. I need you and your men to do something. I'm all ears, Doctor. Moments later, having received his instructions, Mike signaled to his men. They retreated from the circle into the darkness beyond. The Doctor approached Garlin, who was still locked in mental communion. Myara, Myara, my love, be merciless with these animals. Garlin saw the lone head of Daviot Circle. There was Myara, facing more of the human soldiers. And there was the smouldering wreck of a crashed helicopter. Myara had done well. The soldiers, some injured, were taking cover behind the upright stones. 
Mayara gave them no respite, moving from stone to stone, striking them down. Yes! Yes, Mayara! Kill them all! Then one of the soldiers, the one the doctor had called Benton, called to her. He was standing in front of an upright stone. She fired. He threw himself down. Her blast hit the stone, shattering its top half, and rebounded back at her with full lethal force. Mayara! You animals! You killed Mayara! The upright stones powered down, returning to normal. Only the Tharan stone and the recumbent maintained their infusion of energy. The doctor walked up to Garlin and said, It's just you now. You can't succeed. I may not be able to project far without the other stones, but the Tharan stone has absorbed enough energy to kill every human for miles around. Revenge for Mayara, Altus, and Flarin, at least. The doctor said, I don't think so. There's something you haven't noticed. What? With your power levels dropping, you've lost your force barrier. Mike, now! Garlin was startled to realize the doctor was right. The energy barrier had dissolved. And then he saw the unit soldiers approaching from out of the dark around the circle, climbing onto the raised bowl of grass. Between them, they were carrying the wire fencing that had surrounded the circle. They ran at the Tharan stone. The doctor grabbed Garlin and dragged him from the stone as Mike and his men did as he'd told them to. They threw the wire around the still fiercely glowing Tharan stone. Then Mike took the end of the wire, still fixed to a single metal post, and thrust it into the ground with all his strength. No! The air around the Tharan stone came alive with sparks. Fingers of electrical discharge coursed through the wire and dissipated until the glow of the stone had wholly faded away. The doctor said, Your Tharan stone has been earthed. The power you took from this planet has been returned. Garlin lifted his glove to strike down the doctor, but there was no release of energy. The doctor said, the Tharan stone has been completely drained. Even the recumbent is closing. Garlin now saw the fierce glow of the recumbent stone slab was waning. Then let us die together, Doctor. Before the Doctor could react, Garlin grabbed him and pitched them both into the recumbent. Ah! The interior of the power-charged recumbent, the cross-dimensional environment, where the Armidians stored the data they collected, was a swirling vortex of light. The doctor struggled in Garlin's strong embrace. Looking over his shoulder, he could see the portal they'd come through in the face of the recumbent stone. It was getting smaller. This is how we die, you and I, doctor. We are in the data reservoir within the recumbent, but as the Tharan stone is depleted, it's closing. It will turn back to stone around us. It will crush us both. The doctor could see the rock reforming around them as the recumbent returned to its natural state. He had seconds to act. With one great surge of effort, he managed to get one arm free of Garland's embrace. With a practice motion, he applied three fingers and a jab at Garland's neck. Oh! Garland went into spasm and released his grip on the doctor, who made a lunging dive for the portal. The doctor landed heavily on the grass, rolled, then immediately sprang to his feet and ran back to the recumbent in the hope he could save Garlin. But he was too late. The doctor looked crestfallen. I thought we'd lost you, doctor. The doctor said, so did I. He looked at his hand, reforming the pinch he had applied to Garland's neck so effectively. Venusian Aikido. Haven't used it in many a year. After this, I may have to brush up my skills. It could be useful. Rigorous tests showed that the recumbent circles were now once more inert and without the influence of the Armidians, they would remain that way. 
the doctor convinced the brigadier that the Theron stone too was now harmless. He arranged its transport to Professor Reynard's laboratory personally, while continuing to speculate about the meaning of the telephone message that had led to its preservation. Unit wound up its operations at Lossiemouth, but the doctor and the brigadier had one piece of business left. They walked to the side of the runway, where the young lieutenant was watching them from the same spot as he'd seen them arrive. The brigadier said, Just wanted to say what an impressive job you performed, Lieutenant Yates. Splendid. Quite splendid. Just doing my duty, sir. The doctor added, Few could have performed it so bravely, Mike, or with such an open mind. Well, it's been an experience. The brigadier went on, The doctor and I were wondering, now how would you feel about coming to unit on a full-time basis? Join unit? Full-time? The doctor said, Your superiors are reluctant to lose you, but we explained you could hardly turn it down, as the post comes with a promotion. The brigadier said, Yes, how would you like the sound of that? Captain Mike Yates. Oh, I like it, sir. I like it a lot. Doctor Who. Vengeance of the Stones by Andrew Smith was performed by Richard Franklin with Trevor Littledale as Garland.